So let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to Hebrews chapter 2. <clears throat> I had one of those weeks where I wasn't feeling well all week, and so you have to bear with me today. A little bit under the weather, but let's take our Bibles and, and look at Hebrews because this morning we're going to see in this part of the book four things that the Son of God, the incarnate Son in his humiliating and his suffering and his death accomplishes for, for, for his children. That the death of Christ actually is very efficacious for us every day of our lives. So far, we've, we have seen that Scripture has been speaking of the excelling greatness of God's Son, Jesus Christ. That our Lord Jesus Christ is anointed above all others. That Jesus is God the Creator, He is God eternal, He is God unchangeable, and He is given the highest place in this universe. In fact, He is the object of God's final revelation, and therefore He is vastly more superior than all beings, all persons, and all things, and no one will equal Him forever. We also briefly saw in the Word of God four facets of God's design for humanity. Uh, The first one we saw in verse number 7 of chapter 2, and that is this, that man is really distinguished in rank above all other creatures. It says in verse 7, you have made him a little lower than the angels, that man was created lower physically since he is limited to the earth, but not lower in spiritual rank. He ranks right up there with the angels uh, because of how he was created. Man being created in the image of God has definitely a distinguishing rank in creation. Also, man in verse 7 was created with dignity, where it says, the second part of verse 7, you have crowned him with glory and honor. In his unfallen state, at least, in Adam, when we look at the book of Genesis, Adam, in his original exalted position over creation, has and was granted glory and honor. Of course, uh, this also means in verse number 7 that man received dominion over all things, where it says, "And and have appointed him over the works of your hands. In other words, Man in his unfallen state was granted authority and responsibility to rule the world. We look back at Genesis and it tells us there in chapter 1 verse 28, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. But after the fall, of course, the privilege was removed. Man could no longer rule over the world because sin came in. And also we see in verse number 8 of Hebrews chapter 2, man does have a destiny, and his destiny is this. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. But remember, from last time, I says, But that's what we don't see when we look at the world. When we look at uh, the authority that man has in the world, there's a real problem that we we are confronted with. And and it's simply this. We do not see the earth subject to man. We do not see, as of yet, the future world subject to man. As verse number 8 tells us, for in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him, But now we do not yet see all things subject to him. So the reason why we do not see everything subject to Christ, the reason why we don't see everything subject to mankind, is that in our present sinful state, this subjection of all things to man is not yet realized because because of sin, God set aside. He did not terminate, according to this passage. He set aside, he did not terminate his original design for mankind 
to rule the world. That will come. There's coming a time when we will rule and reign with Jesus Christ over the earth, the heavens and the earth. There will come a time again when redeemed man will be given again the right to rule the earth. But we don't see that right now. And it's because of sin. So see, sin's the problem. Sin has to be dealt with. It has to be eradicated. That's where Christ comes in. And that's exactly where the author puts it in Hebrews in verse number 9. This is what we ought to see. This is what we should see. It says, but we do see him who was made a little lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor. So we regain our rank, we regain our status in Christ Jesus. So that brings us to the reason God had to become a man. That Jesus had to be made a little lower than the angels in the sense that he suffered. He became a man. He became flesh and blood. He died a particular kind of death. He suffered a particular kind of suffering. That Jesus, as the high priest, fully participated in humanity. In the humanity of all men. So Jesus must enter the realm of humanity from the cradle to the grave and experience and participate in everything that is human. If he didn't do that, he could not accomplish what he needed to accomplish concerning our salvation. That Jesus came to earth as a man to redeem mankind from his fallen state and regain man's destiny. Now, how does our Lord accomplish this? Only by the design of Jesus' suffering and death could the grace of God save hell-deserving sinners. Someone has to pay the justice of God. God could not let it go because of his character. His very character cannot let it go. Someone has to pay. Someone has to satisfy the standard of justice in which God set. If you don't do these things, you will die in your sin. So many things are accomplished by the design of the suffering and death of Jesus Christ. This morning, though, I would like you to consider, and yes, be encouraged by, the four things his death accomplishes for redeemed sinners now, in the past, and forever. These things cannot be reversed. These things have taken place, and they, they are for us. They're a gift to us from God. And so here's the first one found in verse number 10. And that Jesus' humiliating, suffering, and death secures our salvation. It secures our salvation. That is, by the grace of God, it was necessary that Jesus fully tasted death for us. Why? Look at verse 10. It says, For it was fitting for him, for whom all things and through whom whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of, of their salvation through sufferings. So by virtue of Jesus' suffering and death, He achieves the crowning glory for Himself. He regains the crowning glory for us. And I and you can go to glory by God's grace. It is a free offer by God given to us because the price was paid to secure our salvation in Jesus Christ's death. That is, that God's blessings in Christ toward helpless sinners, which only deserve His curse, is offered by God through His death and suffering. 
That means that the creator and ruler of all things fittingly used suffering to make him complete as the author of our salvation. Now, let me identify a few words in this passage of Scripture to fill in the meaning of the passage a bit. It's the first word in verse number 10. The second part is the word perfect. In your translation, it may be the word complete. The word perfect, though, is a word that means to accomplish. It means to bring something to its goal. So, for instance, it is used in this way in writing of an animal um, which is unblemished, is fit to be offered as a sacrifice, like in the Old Testament, or a scholar who no longer is at an elementary level or stage in his learning, but it has become mature. Or even a human being or an animal who now is no longer a baby, but is now full grown. Or used as a, in reference to a Christian who no longer is a spiritual baby, but has grown to maturity. So it is in this very way the, that the, the basic meaning of perfect or teleos in the New Testament is always that the thing or person so described fully carries out the purpose for which it was actually designed. So then what the writer of Hebrews is saying is that through suffering, Jesus was made fully able for the task of being the pioneer of our salvation. That's what he was designed to do, that his mission was designed to do, to actually secure and making him fully able in his suffering and his death to be the pioneer of our salvation. Another word, a second term, is the word author. Uh, The author of their salvation through suffering. It could also be translated leader, or it can be translated captain. In other words, the term archegos is actually the word, is one who begins something in order that others might enter into it. So Jesus begins something so we could enter into what he was designed to do. It's like somebody who begins a family that someday others may in- enter into that family. Or someone who, f- who founds a city, they find, they, they, found, they find the city in order for someday others may dwell in that city. So the archagos here, the, the person is the person who blazes a trail for others to follow. Somebody has used the analogy for this word in this way. Suppose a ship is on the rocks and the only way for rescue is for someone to swim to shore with a line in order that once the line is secure, others may follow. So the first to swim to shore will be the archagos. The captain will swim to shore for the safety of others. This is what the writer of Hebrews means when he says that Jesus is the author or he is the archagos. He is the captain of our salvation. He blazes the trail to God for us to follow. And he's the only one who could blaze the trail. He's the only one that we can follow, and the reason why is because of his suffering and his death. By his humanity and his humiliating death on the cross, it enables Jesus to die physically in man's place, paying the price and penalty for sins, for the very sins of his children so that individuals could be redeemed and reconciled to God. So hence, Jesus' humiliating death enables unmerited, the unmerited love of God in favor to be manifested to all who put 
their faith in him. So Jesus became a man within the family of mankind in order to become the leader of redemption through his death. Therefore, Jesus becomes the captain of our salvation. We can follow him. This was the very design of his mission, and in doing so, it secures our salvation. He was the only one able to do it. There's no one who met that design other than Jesus Christ. A second thing that his death accomplishes in verse number 11 through 13 is that the Jesus' humiliating suffering and death sanctifies the saints. Or he sets the saints apart for God. And this next section between the children... Uh, Really, it's between the children to be brought to glory and the captain of their salvation that Christ should suffer for us and we should enjoy the benefit of his suffering. How how does he do it? Well, in verse number 11, Jesus is one nature with his redeemed children. It says, For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are from one Father. So Jesus sanctifies and his children are the ones he makes holy. That Christ and his children have the same human nature so that Jesus is able to suffer for them in the flesh and his children are able to benefit from his sufferings. So now they can be sanctified, they can be made holy, they can be consecrated to God. That the sanctified, are those who have made, who have been made freed from guilt through cleansing from sin and have access into God's presence. So the sanctifier, Jesus Christ, now sanctifies or separates or dedicates his elect for sacred use. He sets us apart for God as his children, no longer belonging to the world, but forever belonging to God. Also, Jesus is then not ashamed to call us brothers. It says in verse number 11, it says, for what reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren because we now are in the same family. Jesus being born into the human family, taking on flesh, and we, because of Jesus, following the captain of our salvation becomes part of God's family spiritually. And so he brings us together, and Jesus, in a sense, becomes the elder brother of our salvation. We, with Jesus, become family. Angels did not belong to the brotherhood. They could not belong to the brotherhood of God. Angels never had flesh and blood. Jesus had to stoop down to become our brother. He had to stoop down to lead many sons to glory. See, we have one Father because of Jesus Christ. We have one source because of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus, the the author of Hebrews, quotes from a, a psalm, Psalm chapter 22 actually, and he quotes, all right, being that we are now the family of God, that we are connected through Jesus Christ, we all have the same Father, and now we are, Jesus is our elder brother, then there's a threefold testimony that Jesus gives, being that he is now connected with us. And it's amazing how he does it in verse number 12 of Hebrews chapter 2, that Jesus will declare God's name to his brothers, look what it says, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. He's quoting from Psalm twenty-two, twenty-two. I will tell of your name to my brethren. That's what it says in Psalm 22. Declaring the name of God is telling forth who God is and what he has done. That my God extends his grace, his goodness, his love toward mankind. See, that's the only way people will believe in him so give him glory. So he declares, by declaring his message to us, that Jesus came 
as a man to do what? To declare the message of God to his brethren, to his family, to those who would be part of the greater family of God. That's what he came to do. He could have never come to do that if he did not come in the flesh, if he did not suffer and enter into humanity, experiencing the suffering we experience, even to a greater extent, and then we know even finally experiencing the temptation that we experience in this world. He will experience it to a greater extent, and he will now take on, even to the point of death, in which we will experience someday, and take that on for himself, that he will declare to us the message on how to be rescued from the enemy of our soul, how to be rescued from it, and he will declare that to us. A second thing he does in verse number 12, in the middle of the verse, in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Meaning that once God is in the middle of the assembly, he will praise God before his family unashamed to praise God before his family. Where he says, in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. What better place to praise God than in the public worship and in daily living to declare the goodness of God in the land of the living. That is, this plan of redemption that he's provided a great salvation for his children. By worshiping God together. God in our midst, God being our God, we being his people, worshiping together as a family of God. This is where it's all heading. This is the testimony of Christ as a man coming into the middle of things and preparing things for us. So the author of Hebrews draws again from the Old Testament, here showing that Christ's participation of our nature made it necessary for him to trust God. We see in Jesus' humanity, in the Gospels, he had to pray. He had to go to quiet places to trust God. We see his humanity come, really come out of him when he prays. And that's what it says in verse number 13. This is how we entered in, in verse 13. And again, I will put my trust in him. Who is this? Jesus must put his trust in the Father as a human being. So see, he is so relating to us as humans, so connecting with us as a family, that we can never say that Christ doesn't know what I'm going through. He doesn't know my problems. He doesn't know my needs. He doesn't know because he was never... No, you can't say he was never human The Scripture is going out of its way to say Christ was 100% human. He felt it all. And I would say He felt it more than we feel it. He he felt in His humanity the, the full brunt of what it is to be human. That His nature was thus one like ours with all kinds of needs and troubles and weaknesses. Do you know that for most of Jesus' ministry, he was homeless? He had no address. He had no place to lay his head. The birds of the air had a place to, that he created had a place to lay their head. He did not. He slept here and there all over the place. He was homeless. Most of us are not homeless, never will be. Don't even come close to it. So he had all kinds of needs and weaknesses and troubles in the flesh. This made him our brother. And it made it necessary for him to trust God for deliverance. That's why you find him crying out in the garden, Lord, if this cup of suffering could pass from me, if there's another way, then let it happen but not my will but your will right see what is that isn't that humanity lord let me get out of this tough situation lord let me if i can somehow slip around and be saved some other way then make it so see there's a humanity coming out he had to trust god and you know what maybe the greatest 
thing that we learn as believers is we have to learn to trust God. Right? We trust in money. We trust in our own ability, our own intellect, our own education, our jobs. We trust in people. We trust in politics. We trust in governments. But we don't trust God. That is the greatest learning experience that we'll all have, is to trust God. He is saying here in Scripture that it was Jesus Christ who said, and again, I will put my trust in him, in the Father. So his duty, as well as our duty, is that in all times of trouble, to exercise faith in God's care and protection. You know what? Even when we don't feel it. Even when we can say, I don't feel God's care. I don't feel God's protection. But you know what? Faith is not based on your feelings. Faith is based on God's character. And if Jesus in the flesh put his faith in the Father, what are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to live? We're supposed to live the same way. I believe when we live that way, we learn how to really live. When we learn how to trust God, that what he says is actually true. And it will come to pass. That it is our duty to exercise faith in God's care and protection every day before our family, before our children, before our neighbors. That God is greater than it all, all of it. He's greater than all of it. And why does Jesus do that? Why is he able to stand up in the middle of the assembly and praise the Father for his children? Why is he able to come in the midst of the assembly and worship with his children? Well, verse number 13 fills in the story where it says this, I again will put my trust in him, and again, look what he says, Behold, I and the children whom God has given me. Now this, this is very important here. He's quoting from Isaiah 8, 18. But look what he is saying here. It says, again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. That is through an act of sovereign grace. The Father gives the elect, the chosen, to Jesus to be his children. They are united to Christ. Because God chose them in love and gave them to Jesus. So, within the family of God, all who become redeemed in Christ Jesus, you are a gift from the Father to Jesus. Isaiah eight eighteen says this, Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me. If you take your Bibles real quick, turn over to John chapter 17, John 17, and many other passages. But John 17, actually back uh, forward, uh, tells us something in verse number 6, very similar to what the author of Hebrews is telling us right here. Look what he says in verse number 6 of John 17. It says, I have manifested your name to the men you have given me. Out of the world, they are they were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. John 17, verse 6. See, so all believers are children of God, and God the Father gave them to Jesus Christ. So, again, this is why Jesus can stand in the midst of the assembly and praise God. For his children because it was a gift from the Father. That we are a gift to the Father or from the Father to Jesus Christ. And in the end, Jesus Christ will give the gift back to the Father. And all will be done then. 
So see, you see how Jesus is regaining what sin has taken away from us as human beings. He's regaining it from us. He could not do it if he didn't become flesh. He could not do it if he didn't die in our place. He could have never done that. There's a third thing that is accomplished in Jesus' humiliating suffering and death, and it's this, that he subdues Satan. Look at verse number 14. Jesus, it says, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same. And then it says this, Therefore, since the it says, Then through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. Now, the first part of the verse is it is telling us that, listen, since the children flesh and, uh, share in flesh and blood, he himself had to f- share in flesh and blood. So together we are the same in that. And so make no mistake that the Scripture is telling us that Jesus partook of all things pertaining to the human nature. He was flesh. He was blood. He had a heartbeat. He had feelings. He was hungry. He was thirsty. He was able to experience pain and fatigue and temptation to sin. He experienced feelings of anger and fear and sadness and grief. He had to become a man so that he can ultimately die. Now, so that means Jesus is our representative. A second thing is that Jesus' weapon to secure victory over Satan and over death, his very weapon against him, is the very thing Satan uses against us. Because it says in verse 14, notice it says in the middle of the verse, it says, through, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. That word there, render powerless, is the word that means to make ineffective. The power of Satan has been rendered inoperative in this sense that Christ has made an atonement for sin, fully satisfying God. And that's told in verse number 17, where it says, therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become the merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. He satisfies God's justice. That's that word propitiation. See, the fear of dying has long plagued humanity, has it not? When we come to a passage like this, we find that Christ has settled that problem. He settled it by his own death and resurrection. That Satan's power of death has been annulled for those who are united to Christ in his representative death. That Satan's authority to condemn and punish forgiven sinners has been made void because for them... God has already judged, condemned, and punished all their sin in Christ. There's other passages of Scripture that kind of show us that Satan was disarmed. Satan's weapons, the executing of eternal death upon sinners was removed for all those who believe. Like in John chapter 12, where it says, Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world is cast out. And I love this one from Colossians, where he says in Colossians chapter 2, He had disarmed the rulers and authorities and made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. So how does Jesus do that? By his atoning death, he defeats Satan in death. By his atoning death, he delivers from the power of Satan and from the fear of death. Verse 15, that, and it says, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Here's the culprit of those who fear death. Satan himself 
keeps them right there in slavery, keeps them in fear of death right there, preventing them, keeping them from the light of the gospel that will free them from that fear. That's what he does. He keeps them right there. He keeps them afraid. That's how he enslaves them. He enslaves them by giving them them no information about death. He gives them no information about the why of death. He gives them no information about after death. He, He gives them no information about what can rescue them from death, eternal death. He gives them no information about that. He just keeps them in fear. That's what he does. That's what his job is, and he's good at it. And you know, the fear of death, if you think about it, the fear of death is connected to the sinner's guilty conscience. That the guilty conscience has a sense. It doesn't matter who you are, where you are, where you live. God's given every human being a conscience, right? And his conscience has a sense built into it. That God's wrath and punishment are deserved. Everybody knows it. Whether they want to admit it or not, they know that someday they will give an account. They know it. It's in them. God's put it there. But they don't know what to do with it. And Satan keeps them afraid of it. So when you're afraid of something, what do you do? You don't go buy it. You don't talk. I don't talk, I don't talk about death. Now, we talk about it. We're not going to talk about that. Sorry about it. And what TV and media does is so lowers our threshold for understanding the impact of death like it's no big deal. You blow somebody, well, okay, it was on screen. And we, we're desensitized to the, the reality of death that it really has really pulled from us any meaning of it, even though we know that we will die. But we do know this too. That the all-sufficient, the infinitely valuable blood of Jesus Christ removes believers' sin and causes them to be clothed in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ and cleanses their guilty conscience and at the same time, removes the fear of death. Just flip over to to Hebrews chapter 9 and verse number 14, where he kind of develops this a little bit more further on. In Hebrews 9, 14, it says, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offer himself without blemish to God, and then notice what it says, cleanse your conscience from dead works, to serve the living God. And then look it over, over to chapter 10, verse 22. It says, Let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. That it is the blood of Christ that comes in and cleanses us, cleanses our very conscience with the very fact that we are no longer under God's wrath and punishment because of our own guilt and sin, because Christ in his flesh and death has sufficiently taken care of it by faith. See, I can live now, right? I can live. That means, in my mind, I begin to think, wait a minute, if that's the case, I know Jesus didn't stand the cross. He rose from the grave. He did something with death. He manipulated death in a way that was never done before. He had victory over death in a a way that was never even mentioned before. See, that Jesus becomes the victor, our salvation. Also, the Lord adjusts our view and understanding of death. When we come to the New Testament, we hear the Apostle Paul talk about death, and this is what he says to people. He's preaching them the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he says to them, you know what? To die is gain. Why? What do you mean to die is gain? Nobody wants to die. But he says to them, 
to die is gain. He says that in Philippians 1, 21. And then he says to them also in Philippians, I have a desire to depart and be with Christ. That means the desire I really have is to be out of here and to be with Christ. But it's more beneficial for me to stick around and be with you. Why? You need to grow in truth. You need to grow in the gospel. You need to grow. And you're not at the point where God feels you're ready yet, so I'm going to be sticking around for a while. But it's my desire to go be with Christ. Who thinks like that? The only one who thinks like that, the only people who think like that is people who know where they're going. They know where their stand is before an eternal God, before the Creator. They know that. In fact, the whole Bible was written, these, 1 John 5, 17, these things I've written to you that you may know you have what? Eternal life. Yes, yes. I have a different understanding of death. I have eternal life and I know it. It was also Paul who told, who wrote when writing Titus, the, one of those pastoral epistles, and he said to him in chapter 1, uh, in verse number 2, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ago. Wait a minute. In the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ago? Yeah, God promised this long time ago. He promised it. And then again, Paul uh, tells, writes to this church, uh, to this pastor, and he says in verse chapter 3, verse number 7, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Yes, eternal life. That my whole view of death is changed because of Jesus Christ. I'm enabled to endure end-of-life suffering because of what Jesus had done in my behalf. I'm enabled to treat funerals. Funerals, especially of believing loved ones, as a celebration of the victory earned by Christ's death. I'm glad I was able to do that with my father. I really was glad I was able to do that. It was a totally different experience. See, Jesus Christ is our victor. He has gained victory over Satan. He has delivered us from the power of Satan and from the fear of death. That's what he delivers from. Because Satan on, at the cross was defeated. He was defeated. He was disarmed. Oh, he's still doing his dastardly deeds, but it's over for him. He's just awaiting sentencing. See, we must look at life like this. It could have never happened if Jesus didn't suffer, become a man, and die. Couldn't happen. And you notice in this passage of Scripture, it's not talking about resurrection yet. It's talking about death. It's what is accomplished in Christ's death. Now, the the last one I just want to mention, I have no time to look at it because I'm going to pick it up again later on. And it's the, the fourth thing that is mentioned, the last accomplishment of the humiliating suffering and death enables, uh, by Christ enables him to help and sympathize with sufferers. Look what it says in verse 16. It says, for shortly, excuse me, yes, for shortly he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendants of, of Abraham. Now, the descendants of Abraham, of course, are going to be God's children. That's another way of saying God's redeemed, those who are connected to the promises given to Abraham, right? So God doesn't help angels, and the reason why he doesn't is they don't need any help. He created them in a way they don't need any help. They, they function in uh, within a certain sphere, and the ones who've been assigned to eternal punishment, remember hell was created for Satan and his angels, right? They're done. They can't have any help. They're not redeemable angels. Human beings are. They're redeemable. And so 
it is telling us here in this passage of Scripture, it says, listen, he doesn't give help to angels. He gives help to his redeemed children. Verse 17, therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and a faithful high priest in pertaining in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. In other words, merciful towards us, faithful towards God. That everything the Father gave him to do, he would accomplish, and he would be what? Merciful to us. Another way of thinking about God's mercy is God's pity. God knows us in our complete weakness. And because he knows us in our complete weakness, because he became a man, And suffered everything that men could suffer and more. Look at verse 18. It says, For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. In other words, that as we think of Jesus' humanity in view of being a high priest, that our Lord knew our greatest weakness. He knew what it meant to be flesh and blood, and therefore he knows our needs. Therefore, let's bring them to him. Also meaning that, listen, Jesus just did not die for our eternal salvation. He died for our ever-growing sanctification right now. You can pray to him and tell him your needs and tell him your sorrows and tell him your discouragements and tell him where you're being tempted. Tell him and he is able to come and give you help. We don't believe that today. At large, we don't believe that. So we don't experience God's help. Because we ultimately conclude God doesn't understand. You're so very wrong. You know why? This is what my Bible says. That's why. And my Bible says that Jesus understands. He knows my pain. He knows my suffering. He knows my weakness. He knows what sin is tempting me right now. And he knows how to give me the power to overcome it if I would only come to him and ask him. See, that's what the Bible says. And I believe that when we begin to do that, when we begin to benefit from the efficaciousness of Christ's death and suffering, we will begin to discover the power of God and what it means to walk in the Spirit. Because if I walk in the Spirit... I will not fulfill the lust of the flesh, right? But walking in the Spirit means I come to Christ in prayer and in, with an agonizing soul and tell him what's going on in my heart. Tell him what's going on in my life. Tell him exactly the way I feel. Why? He completely and totally understands and is able to help you. Who else is able to do that? If Christians did that, we would have to put all the drug companies out of business. If the world was nothing but redeemed Christians, there would be no need for that. If we actually practiced what the Word of God said. And believe me, I'm as guilty as you when it comes to this. But I tell you what, when I read this and I see this, I want to practice it. Because I want to see the power of God in my life. Right? When it has to do with my personal problems, my personal needs, my temptations that I experience every single day. To know that I'm flesh and Christ understands what it means to be flesh. He understands. So take all of it to Him. So be encouraged. Because Jesus' humiliating suffering and death accomplishes everything for our eternal salvation, and for our daily walk before we go home. Every step of the way, our Savior is with us. That's what it's saying in Hebrews. He's got your eternal salvation finished. 
it's done. But that daily walk is the thing we struggle with, right? He's got that taken care of too. Let's learn to trust him. Like Christ had to trust the Father, we must trust him. And when we do, we reap the benefits of what scriptures teach. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, I, I thank you that you are the high priest of our salvation. I thank you, Lord, that you are the victor of our salvation, that you are the elder brother of our salvation, and, Lord, that you are the captain of our salvation. So, Lord, as we, we think of that this morning, let us be always giving ourselves over to you, Lord, every day as we pray before you. Lord, we all struggle with one thing or another. And I haven't met anyone who thinks life is easy. So, Lord, because you have entered into where we live and you have suffered even to the point of death and you have been tempted to sin just like we are, Lord, we ask you this morning that your suffering and death would become a benefit to us as we learn to trust you. That you have defeated our greatest enemy, you have satisfied the demands of God's justice, and that you supply our daily needs as we walk through this world. And I pray, Lord, you would adjust all our thinking so, Lord, heaven will be our desire. That we can say, like the Apostle Paul, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So, Lord, we praise you. Continue to work these principles and truths into our heart for the sake of the glory of your great name. And I pray this in Christ's precious and most holy name. Amen.